My name is Mark Davis. I am one of you. And I'm here today at uh, David's gracious invitation to essentially retell a story, the story of the man born blind. Um, it's set forth, uh, John chapter 9. Um, so I'm not going to read the chapter, I'm going to retell the story. But if you have a Bible, I encourage you to sort of read along as I retell the story. So John chapter 9 begins with the words, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. So the pronoun he refers to Jesus. And as we learn from reading chapter 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John, Jesus had traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So this uh, is in October. It's, uh, we're now at the end of the festival. Uh, it's probably the second half of the month of October. Uh, those couple of weeks in Jerusalem had been tumultuous, to say the least. Jesus had had a series of really intense confrontations with the Pharisees. And in fact, he had said things that made the Pharisees so angry that they picked up stones and were prepared to kill him. I mean, it was serious. They, they were in the act. They picked up the stones. The next step was to take him somewhere and kill him. But it was not yet his time. And so he slipped away um, and uh, joined his disciples. And as we begin uh, John chapter 9, we find that uh, Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem, as I said, with his disciples. And as he walks along, he encounters a blind beggar. Now, I'm sure that uh, during the course of his ministry, well, we know that Jesus encountered many people who were suffering, uh, many beggars. But this time... Jesus stopped, and John tells us that um, he looked at the beggar. And there's, there is more to that uh, than we may think. It, it was, as Jesus looked at this beggar, this was no ordinary glance. Jesus was taking the measure of the man. He was looking deep into his soul. And he was examining the character of this beggar. Now, John tells us that the beggar had been blind from birth. And so I think it's, it's worthwhile. The Bible doesn't tell us what the man's life was like. But I think knowing what we know of human nature, that we can make some decent guesses about what life would have been like. Uh, for this blind beggar. And I think that by doing that, we can maybe put ourselves more in his shoes and understand better uh, what happened on this particular day. So the, his mother, of course, went through the anguish, the trauma of labor and childbirth. And when the delivery was complete. The midwife would have wrapped this little boy up in swaddling clothes and placed him in his mother's arms. And that little boy would have been able to feel the warmth of his mother's breath. He would have been able to feel the, her soft kisses on his cheek, but he could not see her face. He could not see the fear and anxiety that would have swept across her face when one of the other women who was present with her said or asked, 
what's wrong with his eyes? That was a terrifying question, then and now. And that little boy was blind and could not see the concern in his mother's face. I know a little bit about what it means uh, to have uh, limited vision from watching our number three grandson. Um, it's, it's difficult growing up uh, with uh, limited vision. This, this story of the man born blind has a, um, a dimension to it now that Luke is in the family that uh, it didn't have 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I think about him, this little boy, growing. He learns to roll over. Um, he learns to crawl. He begins to pull himself up on things, but he can't see very well what's up above. You can easily imagine him pulling stuff down on himself. Um, I think of him reaching a point in life where he could pull himself up. Uh, maybe there's a box in the corner of the room that he has um, learned about, and he crawls over, and he pulls himself up on that box, and he reaches out. With one hand, he's holding the box. With other, he is reaching out. But for him, he is reaching out into darkness. And though he's just a toddler, though he can't uh, understand exactly what's going on, he can't really understand what this symbolizes, he, that little boy, reaching out in the darkness is really us. We are holding on to whatever seems firm, reaching out into darkness and wondering, is there someone who will take our hands and lead us forward, lead us to safety. So, the years pass by. This little boy and all the other boys in the neighborhood uh, begin, uh, they grow. And the other boys in the neighborhood would have learned father's trade. Um, coppersmith, potter, weaver, whatever, each boy would have followed in his father's footsteps and learned his father's trade. We do not know what this boy's father did, but whatever it was, this boy, this blind boy, could not follow in his father's footsteps because he was blind. And so we can imagine that the day came when his father took him aside and said, you know, um, it takes money to feed you. It takes money to have clothes for you. Um, you need to do something to bring money into the family to help provide uh, for uh, your care. And so we are going, we, uh, you know, I, your father, am going to expect you now to beg. And his father would have, I imagine, placed a mat beside a street, set the boy down on it with a bowl in front of it, and said, I want you to sit here, and we will hope that people come by and drop coins in your bowl, and that money our family will use to support you. Um, so from that day forward, that's, that was the boy's life, sitting on a mat by a street with a begging bowl in front of him, experiencing life go by. Obviously, he has uh, receives no formal education, um, but I suspect that he received a very significant education based upon what happened there on the street. I'm guessing that people stopped and uh, conversed with each other uh, with an earshot. Uh, they may have um, 
ignored him. They may not have cared that he was present, but I suspect that that boy heard a lot, many conversations uh, as he grew. And uh, he would have come to realize that uh, life isn't always, appearances aren't always indicative, that people aren't always what they seem to be. So for example, the poor old woman who occasionally dropped a small coin in his bowl was a person of great faith, whereas the fellow who sold trinkets in the court of Gentiles at the temple seemed to despise both God and man. Now, obviously, the Bible doesn't... I'm adding this. This is a product of imagination, but I think it's a fair... It's fair to understand or a fair way to look at this boy and his life experience. He learned about human nature. He learned about people. He learned about life the hard way, sitting there on the street as a beggar. The boy would have sat there week after week, month after month, year after year. And because he was blind, I'm fairly confident that his other senses became more acute. His hearing was a little bit sharper than that of the other boys. Probably his um, sense of smell, uh, perhaps uh, touch. But in any event, I'm I'm guessing, and I think it's reasonable to to believe that uh, he would have been able to sense the approach of people. And on This day in October, when Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem with his disciples, um, as they approach the beggar, I think the beggar would have sensed their presence um, because he, he needed that. I mean, there were people out on the streets who would take advantage of him if they could. And I would guess the beggar learned the hard way to be careful, to be alert. So the, uh, the baker senses uh, the group of people approaching. There's a pause, and then he hears someone say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I'm fairly confident that this was not the first time the beggar had heard that question or some variation on that question. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I think it's fair to assume that this is a question that this man had wrestled with for much of his life. I am guessing, and again, I think it's a reasonable guess, that over and over he had cried out to God, what did I do in my mother's womb to deserve the punishment of blindness? And day after day, God had remained silent until that October morning. The beggar probably was not surprised by the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? But I think that he was shocked, I'm convinced he was shocked, by the answer that he heard. Now, there's no reason to think that at this point the beggar knew who was involved in this conversation. Whoever had asked the question said, Rabbi, and the rabbi answered. And it's the the rabbi's answer that is shocking because um, the uh, rabbi said to his disciple, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in his life. So the rabbi is saying, this this blindness is not punishment. It is something else. It is to serve as a canvas upon which a work of God will be displayed. 
So th that much of the answer is shocking, but, but the rabbi, whoever he was, didn't stop there. He went on and said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. A truly audacious statement. I would guess that the, the, the blind man was stunned. I mean, what, what is the significance of all this? What's going on here? Um, at that point, the blind man would have heard footsteps, someone walking toward him. Whoever walks toward him kneels down uh, by the blind man, and uh, he spits on the dirt in front of uh, the blind beggar. The, the beggar would have heard that. He would have heard the guy spit on the ground. And I'm guessing, the Bible doesn't say this, but I think it's very, um, it's, a, it's reasonable to think that one of the disciples would have said, Jesus, what are you doing? And pretty much that tone of voice. I don't think Jesus answered that question. What we know, what John tells us is that Jesus took the saliva, mixed it with mud, and made a kind of muddy salve, and he, he dipped he, his fingers into that mud, into that salve, and he wiped some of it on one of the man's eyes, and then he took the balance of the mud and wiped it on the man's other eye. And having, having done that, having put this curious salve on the man's eyes, Jesus said to him, Go... Uh, wash in the pool of Siloam. So this is sort of interesting. Jesus does something outrageous. He, he smears mud on the man's eyes. He says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he doesn't promise anything. Jesus doesn't say, well, if you go, this is what will happen. He just says, go. And interestingly enough, this man, who I think had experienced a lot on the streets, he was probably pretty skeptical of people and human nature. But in this instance, that man got up and walked to the pool of Siloam. So it's, it's likely that as he approached the pool, the man would have gone down some steps to a ledge that was just a little bit above the water in the pool. Um, he would have knelt down. He would have cupped his hands. He would have reached down. He would have probably smelled the water uh, before he touched it. He would have got as much water in his cupped hands as he could, and he would have splashed it in his face. And I think that what happened is, at that point, the water hits his face, hits his eyes, and I'm guessing that there was an instant of throbbing pain and then he could see. Just stop and think about that. The water splashes up in his face, and in an instant, his life is filled with light. The darkness is gone. His light is filled with, his life is filled with light. I'm guessing that the first thing he ever saw was drops of water falling from his fingers back into the pool. And then he would have seen the pool, he would have looked up, seen the walls, the people, the sky, an amazing thing. Now, he can see. He um, would have, we know that, that he made his way back to uh, the old neighborhood. And I'm, I'm guessing that as he, as he went along, he began looking and listening at the same time. Things that he had known by sound, now he could, the vendor who was selling dates or spices, he could, before he would have heard the vendor's voice calling out, now he could look at the vendor and see what does a pile of dates look like? What does an array of spices look like? Before he would have heard the braying of a donkey, maybe felt its soft ears or heard the swishing of a tail, now he could look at it. He could walk over to the donkey and pat it on the head and go, 
this is what a donkey looks like. He, in any event, he makes his way back to the old neighborhood. And I think, again, Don, John doesn't tell us exactly, but I think this is fair to infer. Jesus and the disciples are gone. Uh, they disappeared. So I'm guessing that the beggar walked over to where he had sat all those years, and I can imagine him picking up um, the begging bowl and looking down to it and reflecting on um, what that had meant in his life and realizing that now something new was, was beginning in his life. And if we go back to the text, uh, we can, John tells us that when he walked back to the neighborhood, back to his old place, um, we can imagine someone calling out to him, what are you doing with the beggar's bowl? Who are you? And uh, we can imagine someone else saying, well, it's the beggar. And the first man saying, no, it's not the beggar. This man can see. So we, we, there's this dispute among the neighbors as to whether this beggar, formerly blind man, now sighted man, uh, is in fact the beggar of old. And he keeps insisting to them, I am the man. I, I am the man who was blind. I am the man who used to sit and beg. And now I can see. So this was uh, an astounding uh, circumstance. So, and it happened on the Sabbath. So those two things are important, that the healing and the fact that the healing took place on the Sabbath. So it says, John tells us they, presumably the neighbors, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. I'm guessing, John doesn't tell us, but it seems to me they would have taken him to the temple, to some place in the temple complex. And I'm guessing that they took him to a room in a part of uh, the temple called the women's court. I am guessing, I don't know this, but I'm guessing that the Pharisees sat in a semicircle, right? They would have been up on a dais, raised up, the man standing like I am facing, but he's facing a semicircle, Pharisees. And that's set up so they can examine him. They can study him, examine him, and try and understand what happened. I'm guessing that the Pharisee who sat in the middle was sort of the presiding Pharisee, the one with the most authority. He's the one who directed the examination. He would have looked at the beggar, studied him, and then we know from what John tells us that this Pharisee asked the beggar, how did you receive your sight. And I'm guessing that when the uh, Pharisee said, how did you receive your sight, that there was some skepticism in his voice. It would have gone something like this. How did you receive your sight? The beggar's cautious. He says, he, Jesus, put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. We know that this answer provoked controversy among the Pharisees. Again, think there's an array of Pharisees, and some of them immediately say, this man is not from God, referring to Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others say, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? So, eventually the foremost Pharisee, the presiding Pharisee, would have raised his hand, for, asked for silence, and uh, he turns to the beggar and he says, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And we know that the beggar said, he's a prophet. So the Pharisees confer amongst themselves 
the obvious question is, is this, was this man really blind? So in order to answer that, they need his parents. So they would have sent a guard or guards off to uh, retrieve the man's parents, to bring them to the hearing. And uh, that would have taken time. It would have been a delay. But eventually, the parents came to the proceeding and were examined by uh, the Pharisees. It's very likely, there's no indication that when the blind man or the beggar returned to his neighborhood after the healing that he encountered his parents. Um, it seems to me, it seems likely that this may have been the first time in his life that he'd actually seen his parents' faces. Um, it's likely they were poor people. They'd never experienced anything like this, and they were frightened. The presiding Pharisee, imagine the parents now standing in front of these Pharisees, this group of Pharisees. And the presiding Pharisees points to the beggar, and he says, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And I think at that point, the beggar's mother probably turned and looked in his direction and uh, gazed into the face of her son. And I think he returned that gaze, maybe with a weak smile. And then he would have heard his father say, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. He is of age he will speak for himself. And that, uh, those words uh, must have uh, been very discouraging for the beggar because essentially his parents were saying to him, you're on your own. Uh, whatever happens now, it's on you. We're not, we're not going to defend you in any way. You're going to speak for yourself. And so the... Um, The, um, the blind man is there. He's on his own. Um, there is a pause. The, the, the parents uh, finish speaking. And uh, again, the Pharisees turn to the uh, blind man and, or the, the beggar who is now sighted. And they say, give glory to God we know that this man is a sinner. If you think about that, it's not a question. It's a statement. What the Pharisees are saying to the beggar is this. We demand that you agree with us that this Jesus is a sinner. So I think at that point, um, the beggar is processing what's going on. He's thinking about what's going on. And I think that he can appreciate the Pharisees' dilemma. Jesus had worked on the Sabbath uh, when he made the mud and applied the mud to the man's eyes. Those were considered acts of work. They were forbidden by the law as the Pharisees understood the law. So this, from their point of view, is a clear-cut violation. So one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is a lawbreaker, or he has authority to redefine what it means to obey the law. I think that is the kind of issue that the beggar was thinking about as he listened to the Pharisees. I'm, I d would guess that uh, the beggar uh, responded something like this. He, re he very much doubted that Jesus was a sinner. He very much doubted that this uh, accusation about Jesus was true, but he wasn't sure. And so being a, a sort of cautious fellow, he said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, 
Now I see. The, the healing was astounding. Everybody in the room knew that. Um, the beggar, I think, expected the Pharisees to confront this amazing circumstance and to explain, if they could, how a sinner could perform um, such an astounding act. Um, but that's not what happened. Uh, the Pharisees refused to engage in any kind of meaningful debate with the beggar. Instead, the presiding Pharisee asks, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So, just to kind of recapitulate, the, the parents testify, yes, this is our son. He was born blind. The Pharisee, again, you know, what do you say? The beggar, though I was, was blind, now I see. And then the Pharisees come back at him with, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? The, the, um, <clears throat> the beggar, I think, understood the significance of the questions. The Pharisees were not attempting to um, find the truth. This was no longer a, a, um, a hearing in which the object was to find out what had happened. Uh, this was, these kinds of questions are asked to trap someone. Uh, it's a, a fairly classic interrogation technique. You ask a witness to tell the story over and over and over, and eventually, perhaps he will uh, make some kind of inconsistent statement, and the interrogator can trap him in the inconsistency and accuse him of fab fabrication. So the, the beggar was savvy enough to understand what was going on. Um, this, this hearing, if it had ever been uh, a search for truth, was no longer a search for truth. What this hearing was now was an attempt by the Pharisees to confirm their prejudices about Jesus. Uh, I think at that point the beggar looked around the room and I think he would have thought, you know, the, the human face is an amazing window into the soul. Uh, he would have seen dejection on his mother's face, fear on his father's face, cowardice on the faces of some of the Pharisees, and malice on many of the faces of the Pharisees. As I mentioned before, there were no friendly faces, no allies. He was alone. Whatever decision he made now would be his and his alone. I think that for him, the decision to go to the pool of Siloam and wash had been much easier. Jesus had told him to go. Uh, why had he gone? I, Jesus hadn't promised anything. He just said, go, and the beggar went. And I think the beggar would say it was hard to explain. You had to hear his voice. If you heard his voice, you would know why I went, why I just got up and went to the pool. But Jesus wasn't there. And I, th I suspect the beggar asked, you know, would have said something like this. If only Jesus was present, he would know what to do. But Jesus wasn't there. And yet, Jesus' words keep, kept coming back to the beggar. And I think they touched something deep in his soul. All his life, he had been told that his blindness was punishment for sin, maybe punishment for his sin, maybe his parents' sin, but either way, punishment for sin. And I think, like Job, the beggar had trouble accepting that explanation. But he had never been able to come up with a better explanation until today. For the first time in his life, he had heard someone say it was not that this man sinned or his parents but the works of god but that the works of god might be displayed in him so what exactly did jesus mean 
Was he saying that some grace had lain dormant in the beggar's suffering all these years? Was he saying that God would use today's healing as an opportunity to say something profound about this man called Jesus? I think at this point, uh, the beggar knew that he would never be satisfied until he had answers to those questions and he knew that only Jesus could provide the answers that he craved. Which meant that he would not, could not, give in to the Pharisees' demand that he condemn Jesus as a sinner. And so at that point, the beggar makes a fateful choice. Instead of answering the questions that the presiding Pharisee had put to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes the beggar said instead, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And we, know, we know from the text that the Pharisees were just appalled by the, the answer. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not where, know where he comes from. Pharisees were angry by this point, but so was the beggar. Initially, he had cloaked his uh, anger and irony, but now he threw off the cloak and uh, addressed them plainly. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And as you can see from the text, this was just too much for the Pharisees. The beggar's impudence, what they perceived to be impudence, was just intolerable. You were born in utter sin. You can imagine them gnashing their teeth as they spoke their, those words. You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. I would guess that a couple of guards, one on either side, escorted him to, out of the court of women, probably out to the court of Gentiles, and uh, there he stood. And I wonder what the beggar thought at that point. I'm guessing that he laughed. You know, you think about it. I woke up this morning blind, and here I am at the end of the day, able to see. I began the day as a blind beggar, and now I am a sighted seeker looking for Jesus. But it's late in the day, uh, there probably are quite a few people milling around. Uh, I'm guessing that that day he went off, found something to eat, a place to sleep, and that is how that particular day came to an end. I'm also guessing that uh, he returned to the court of the Gentiles, to the temple, um, the next day. There, uh, in the court of the Gentiles, there were lots of people uh, there were vendors, pilgrims, Pharisees, all people from all walks of life in Jerusalem and that world would come to the court of Gentiles, uh, some as part of uh, a desire to know more about God, others to make money. It was a, a very colorful place, to say the least. As the beggar moved through the crowd, he heard a voice. And uh, he turned around, and there was a young man, a 30-something man, who was asking him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the beggar looked at him, and as we know, he was a cautious fellow. The beggar responded, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And the young man said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And John tells us at that point, the beggar looked at him and said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. 
So at that point, what remained was for Jesus to explain the meaning of what had happened over the last day or so. And Jesus put it this way. He said, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Um, as I said, this was a place where there were people from a lot of different walks of life. We know that the, the Pharisees were conflicted about Jesus. Many of them hated him, but others were curious. Uh, we know that there were people like Nicodemus, maybe Joseph of Arimathea, that were, uh, if not following him, very close to it. So there were, if you wanted to interact with Jesus, if you were a Pharisee and you wanted to interact with Jesus, the court of Gentiles would be a good place to do it. You could go there, find him, maybe listen to him without being identified as one of his disciples. And that's why I think John tells it that there were Pharisees present when Jesus spoke those words. And the Pharisees, being Pharisees, said, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. I'd like to, to pause for just a moment to think about the word judgment. Uh, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world. In our American legal system, a judgment uh, typically follows a fact-finding process, a trial. It can be a trial to a jury, it can be a trial to a judge, but generally there's some kind of fact-finding process. And there are two dimensions to a judgment. One dimension is what happened. So for example, in a criminal case, the jury may be asked to decide, did the defendant shoot the victim or did somebody else shoot him? But there's more, because not only does the jury have to decide what happened, but the jury has to decide what is the significance, the legal significance of what happened. Um, for example, was the shooting justified as an act of self-defense, or was the shooting an unjustified assault? So I, we see in chapter 9 that the healing is not the end of a story, rather it's the beginning of a time of testing and trial. The beggar, his parents, his neighbors, the Pharisees, each must um, react to the healing, each must decide what happened and what does it mean. And the decisions that each group made moved them in one of a couple directions. For some, it moved them closer to God for the beggar. For others, it moved them away from God, the Pharisees. I think it, so why? I mean, one of the questions is, I, I thought about this text, one of the, the reasons that I chose this text is because it's inter, it is interesting to me, and I think it's pertinent for us to ask, why did the, why did the beggar make the decision that he did, and the Pharisees and some of the others make the decisions that they did? Because today, just as it was a couple thousand years ago, we have to, to make, we have to respond to Jesus. We have to uh, decide what does his life mean? Uh, what happened? You know, was the tomb empty or not? Uh, if the tomb was empty, what does it mean for us? So in this case, um, I think the, the beggar possess some traits that we would do well to, to reflect upon because I think that they could be or would be helpful for us as well. The beggar possessed a trait which, there's a fellow named Joseph Peeper, Peeper who you may or may not be familiar with, but he, he's written a lot about uh, virtue and um, among the virtue virtues, prudence. And one of the things he talks about is what he calls clear-sighted objectivity. Clear-sighted objectivity. So in this case, the beggar uh, is very cautious. Um, the healing is unexpected. It's astounding. 
nobody knows what to make of it. Nobody knows exactly what to make uh, of Jesus. But the beggar senses that God's hand is in this. He says uh, early on in the interrogation, uh, he says to the Pharisees that when they ask him, Jesus is a prophet. Uh, but at this point, his, his understanding is still very hazy. Um, and he uh, actually needed the argument with the Pharisees in order to clarify his thinking. The beggar's clear-sighted objectivity stands in sharp contrast with the Pharisees' prejudice. Once the, once the parents have testified, the, the Pharisees have no reasonable basis for doubting that a healing has occurred and that something absolutely staggering has taken place. And yet, um, and that gave them an opportunity to go back and ask, what is the meaning of, of, of obedience? What does it mean to obey the law? Um, why, how, why would God do something like this? Why would God orchestrate such a, a, an amazing miracle on the Sabbath? Maybe we've misunderstood the law. But the, the Pharisees couldn't or wouldn't go back and ask themselves tough questions. Um, after the parents uh, testify, the first thing the presiding uh, Pharisee says to the beggar is, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. Um, the, beggar, the beggar's response to this statement, we, we spent some time thinking about the beggar's response to the statement. And I think at, this, at that point, the beggar knew that there probably was no evidence that was going to change the Pharisees' minds, no argument that was going to change their minds. And yet, and this to his very considerable credit, the, the beggar tried to engage them. He said, among other things, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the beggar is trying to engage the Pharisees, trying to uh, get them to, to think about what's going on, but they refuse, and their response is, who are you to teach us, you who were born in utter sin? The beggar had one other trait that I want to mention. Um, he could... Uh, there was a, uh, an open-mindedness to him that the, that the Pharisees lacked. And I, I wondered why. What was it about Jesus and the miracle that uh, caused the, the beggar to look at things so differently? And I think part of it is that Jesus offered the beggar something that the Pharisees uh, did not and could not. The world that the beggar lived in before the healing was a world in which blindness, suffering were punishments from God. And uh, Jesus said to the beggar, in essence, no, that's not correct. The old understanding of suffering is inadequate. Um, I'm offering a very different take on the meaning of suffering and hardship. Uh, instead of seeing them as punishment, I want you to think about them as um, opportunities for in which God can do amazing things. And I think that that new view of suffering and hardship appealed to the beggar and made him realize that he no longer wanted to be part of the old world, of the old way, but they wanted to, though he didn't understand all of what Jesus was about, he sensed that there was something very different, profoundly different, about uh, Jesus and his understanding of, of law and of God. Um, one last point. Um, the beggar 
made his choice uh, knowing that what the reaction of the Pharisees would be. And their reaction was just what he expected. They expelled him. They ejected him. And yet it was a price that the beggar was willing to pay. Um, he would not turn on Jesus. He accepted ostracization by the Pharisees rather than abandon his quest for truth. And I suspect that in the coming um, months and years, uh, we, uh, if you think about, for example, what's happened over the last couple years, um, the way in which COVID has roiled our nation, our state, just our little fellowship, um, we have been forced to ask, you know, what's reality? What's truth? How do, we, how do we figure these things out? How do we decide how to proceed? Um, that's uh, not going to change. I think that going forward, um, we are increasingly going to be put in difficult situations where we have to sort out what's real, what isn't, and then how do we respond as best we can and I think that um, we would do well to remember the beggar, his, his cautiousness, um, his um, focus on what he knew to be true, and then his ability to think through the implications of what he knew to be true, to test the views that, that he um, was hearing from others, and then to decide how he would, would move forward. So, um, with that, um, I complete my prepared remarks, and, and I will add then only this. Um, the story of this healing um, is uh, a living story, and it is for you, in a way, to complete the sermon. So, right, I, it's time for me to stop talking. And now, as we go from here, it's for you to, to complete the sermon um, by letting that story um, shape your imaginations, shape how you live. Well, you've been very patient. Um, thank you for listening to me. Thank you, David, for the kind invitation. Yes. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you very much for your word, this story. We thank you for the courage of the man born blind. We thank you for uh, his example of faithfulness, uh, for the ways in which he shows us how to think about tough problems and uh, to work through them. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.